This is uh, another one that I prayed about dividing it into two sermons, and uh, yet we're going to try and keep it as one uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, we're going to try and move quick. So listen quick. <laughs> uh, I usually spend, you know, five to ten minutes or more on an intro. We're not going to do an intro. We're going to jump right into text, let the text be the intro, and, uh, and then move forward from there. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 16. Let's read this together. It says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, Father, I pray that... Uh, that we would be given hearts that are open to see your word and to see these not just as words on a page, but Father, as your word for us today. And uh, Father, I pray that you would reveal the depths of our hearts that are not honoring to you. Uh, and that Father, you would uh, help us to see ultimately your son Jesus who who was trained in godliness and set the example for us and lived the life that we could not live. And so, Father, pray as we study your word that uh, you would transform us today. It's in your son's name. Amen. All right, so my goal this morning is this, is that you would be a good servant of King Jesus. That is, that is my goal. My goal is that. I think the goal here of Paul writing to Timothy is that Timothy would be a good servant of King Jesus. And I don't think that that is a bad goal for each one of us in here as well. Matter of fact, I think it is a necessary goal that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, that you be a good servant of King Jesus. No matter what age you are, from the youngest to the oldest, that you would be a good servant of King Jesus. Now realize this. We just left some passages talking about apostasy, talking about those who would claim to be followers of Jesus that are now no longer followers of Jesus. And just to kind of caveat that, we talked about how I think that 
that apostasy is is indeed a warning, but at the same time, it's probably more revelatory of someone who never was a follower of Jesus than it was of someone who literally did depart from the faith, but at least departed in appearance from the faith. And so we're leaving the context, or we're still in the context, if you will, of someone who claimed to be a follower of Christ and then is now no longer a follower of Christ. The beginning, it says, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And now he goes in and says, Timothy, in response to that or because of that or in the context of people who will do that, here is what you are to do, and here is what you are to do for those around you. So I just want to remind us that what's at stake here is you and I departing from the faith. So this, what we're getting ready to talk about, is of great importance. This idea of godliness and being a servant of the king isn't just, okay, well this is how I can go live my good Christian life. What's at stake here is that if you were not to live as Paul is encouraging Timothy to live here in these ten short verses, that maybe one day you would find yourself having departed from the faith. That's the weightiness of what Paul is talking to Timothy here in these ten verses. And that is the weightiness, I think, that we should assign and that we should understand as we listen to these words today. So with that said, Jumping right in, our identity, right? We always talk here as a church about what is our identity because then our identity is only something that is changed by redemption. Who we are changes as, as we are servants or as we are um, uh, made in the image of God, an image of Christ, as we are being transformed. Our identity is changed because of Jesus. And so our identity is that you are a servant of King Jesus. Now, we, we talk about our identity as servants here as a church. That's one of our five identities, that we are servants. But today we're going to talk largely about being a servant of King Jesus. We are a servant of other people, but we are first and foremost a servant of King Jesus. And what he says here to Timothy is that if you're to be a good servant of King Jesus, then you need to learn and teach the following things. You should learn these things. You should teach these things. And so, <clears throat> 1 Timothy 4.6 says this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. The first thing I want us to see is that Paul begins with reminding Timothy that he is first and foremost a servant of King Jesus. He is first and foremost a servant of King Jesus. Now I want to kind of hammer in on this this morning. Your primary job title If you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, your primary job title is a servant of King Jesus. Now I want you to write that, if you're taking notes, write that down. My job title is a servant of King Jesus. If you're not taking notes, write it on your brain. 
You're a servant of King Jesus. If you've been bought by the blood of Christ, then you are a servant of King Jesus. You are not primarily, first and foremost, a factory worker, a parent, a stay-at-home mommy. You are first and foremost a servant of King Jesus. You work for the King. Your job title is first and foremost a servant of the King. Now because God owns everything, He owns all these following items on this list, but because he, if you are redeemed, if you have been bought by the blood of Christ, He owns you even more so. He owns your time. He owns your money. He owns your house. He owns your car. He owns your hours at work. He owns your hours at home. He owns your hours in retirement. And He owns your hours in college. We don't get to compartmentalize the faith. It's either all or nothing. He either owns it all or he owns none of it. Or at least you would think you own it and he does not. But he owns it all. Luke 14.33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says that unless I own it all, you can't be my disciple. And Jesus wasn't just talking about his pocketbook. He's talking about everything. The air you breathe is mine. Right? He created it. If, if he is indeed the king, and we are indeed his servants, and we get, because understand, getting to serve the king is a privilege. And if we get to serve the king, then we don't get to complain about serving too much. And we don't get to whine about our preferences. What we get to do is die for the king. We get to die for the king. We get to renounce all that we have in order to receive all that King Jesus has as a servant of the king. Now you may ask, all right, so if I work for King Jesus, then what about my employer on Monday? What what does that look like? I would say this, you get to live out your primary job title as a servant of King Jesus in the various job titles that you have throughout the week, right? So what does this look like? For example, just in my own life, Sunday through Thursday during the day, I am primarily, I am first and foremost a servant of King Jesus, and I largely do that through pastoring and leading Renovation Church. Sunday through Thursday, primarily in the evenings, I am a servant of King Jesus, primarily through being a daddy and a husband. But I'm not first and foremost a daddy and a husband, I'm first and foremost a servant of King Jesus. And then I get to live that out as a pastor, as a daddy, as a husband. Paul says to Timothy, if you're to do these things, you will be a servant, a good servant of King Jesus. So he reminds Paul, or he reminds Timothy, and I love, Paul does this all the time, but he reminds Timothy of his identity first and foremost. You're a servant of King Jesus. And so I say to you, if you are redeemed, you are a servant of King Jesus. First and foremost, that is your identity. It is who you are in Jesus If you have no desire to be a servant of King Jesus, then you're not a child of King Jesus. I mean, it's just as simple as that. So next thought here, and this is where we're going to kind of press in on this a little bit further, is that a servant of King Jesus grows in knowing that 
edicts of King Jesus. The commands, the proclamation, what He desires. You might even edit that to say, grows in knowing and in following the edicts of King Jesus, the, the proclamation of King Jesus, the words of King Jesus, the desire of King Jesus. You best prepare for serving King Jesus by knowing King Jesus. Think about this when it comes to your workplace. You best serve your boss when you know what your boss wants, right? Makes sense. Well, if Jesus is your boss before anyone else is your boss, then how do you best know what to do to please the boss? you got to know, right? you got to know Him, and you got to know what He wants. Now, I know this statement is going to be a little harsh, but many of us have such little impact on the kingdom of God because we have no clue what the king wants. We just don't have any clue. Or, or we, if we do, it's very shallow. We just walk our merry way assuming we know King Jesus and we know what He wants. Again, a little, pressing a little bit further. Jesus has not primarily revealed Himself to you through the trees, life experience, what your mama taught you, or your Sunday school teachers. He's done this primarily through the Word of God. He has revealed Himself to you through the Word of God. Now, insofar as what your mommy or your life experiences or the trees teach you what the Word of God teaches you, then you can know for sure that it is the edicts of our King Jesus. But He has revealed Himself to you through His Word. I like what Jason Mayer, if you know who John Piper is, Jason Mayer is the pastor who replaced John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist. He said this, he says, You can't be a herald of the Word unless you're first a steward of the Word. So you can't be a servant of the king until you first know the king. And you'll only be as good of a servant to the extent to which you know the king. So some of us are terrible servants because we don't know the king very well. Or we knew the king and we learned, you know, we got to a first grade level of knowing the king and then we stopped and just stayed there. But he says to him, if you're to be a good servant of the king, you will be trained in the words of the faith. He's telling you that's being trained in the words of the faith. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, a present, ongoing reality. Being trained in the words of the faith, he says to Paul. Or sorry, Paul says to Timothy. So you best prepare for serving King Jesus by knowing and following the doctrine. Notice back what he says. <clears throat> he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. I know, doctrine. We talk about that a good bit as a church. It's not just for someone who goes to seminary. If you're a servant of King Jesus, why would you not learn the, key, the teaching of King Jesus? Let me press in again a little further here. What good is a baby for society? Just think about this with me for a second. Think about, think about my little boy, Silas. What is he contributing to society? He can't do anything himself. I mean, other than maybe crawl, right? He spends all of his time consuming, right? 
Even when he's crawling, he's trying to consume things, right? There's something on the floor. He finds it, right? The basement is a dangerous place for him. He even breaks things often along the way. Terrorizes the dogs and eats their food, right? The dogs are like, we don't get to eat that often anyways. And then he comes along and eats our food. I mean, what, what, what good? Now, there's potential there, right? right? Lots of potential, good for, the, for society. Let me read to you Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. It says, about this, now again, these are in the context of apostasy, those who would depart from the faith. Listen to these words, verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 5. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But the solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I mean, just just put a few things together here. What good is a Christian who's still living on milk? I think Hebrews is saying the chances of him leaving the faith are huge. He calls him an unskilled, he is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But the solid food is for the mature, that's what he says. Again, I'm just going to keep pressing it here a little bit more. Some of us choke on Sunday morning because it takes all we have to just swallow the milk. And some of us don't realize we're not getting meat because our belly gets full on the milk. Now, where I've seen this particularly, I've seen this like in house gathering. When we have a couple people that have like, they already processed the milk and they've been eating the meat... They bring that into house gathering and discussion time, and it, it just infiltrates. Like, it's just awesome, right? But then I also see other weeks where we just, we're just still trying to suckle on the milk. And, and, it, and we're not able to move past that, and, it, and that's hard. It doesn't, we're not able to move further. And, and what, what's at risk here is apostasy, that we would depart from the faith. So let's just give you a practical thing just to push renovate us, okay? Renovate us is where you need to get the milk, okay? Get the milk on renovate us. That's that's the things that you can easily discover on your own from the text. So then when we come in on Sunday, when we come in the house gathering, like then you can spend your time instead of trying to still process the basic information of the text, you can Spend that time processing the more difficult things of the text. So, I, I know, I know. I just stepped on a whole bunch of toes. I got that. Um, but let me say here. So, we are all servants of the King. We're all servants of King Jesus, okay? That is our primary job title. And all I've been talking about so far 
is how to be a good servant of the king and knowing the servant of the king. And it's not me who said that those living on milk is, that are unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's, that's, that's him. That's the author of Hebrews. The solid food is for the mature. But we're all servants of King Jesus. And servants of King Jesus need and must and will move on from the milk and move on to solid food. Now I want you to think about, if we think about this idea of being a servant of King Jesus, I want you to later today to think about what does it mean for you to live out that job title? What does it mean for today, for the rest of today, for tonight, for tomorrow, for tomorrow evening, for you to change the perception that you have that you are first and foremost a king, a servant of King Jesus? Now Paul fleshes this out a bit for Timothy, and I think this obviously uh, certainly applies to us. But the next thing I think we see is that a good servant of King Jesus will train himself in godliness. Will train himself in godliness, verses 7 through 10 here. All right. So after he says, you'll be a good servant of King Jesus. Now we move on to verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of the people, especially of those who believe. (coughs) Now, Paul puts an emphasis here on knowing the Word of God. If we haven't done that already, uh, if he hasn't done it already, he continues to do that. How can we have nothing to do with falsehood? How do we discern what is good and what is evil? How do we not fall away from the faith? We have to know the Word. We have to know the truth, right? That's even what he says at the end of Hebrews in verse 14. But solid food is for the mature's for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So those who are eating solid food can distinguish from good from evil. So instead of floundering in falsehood, we can more recognize, more easily recognize falsehood by pursuing godliness, by pursuing the word and knowing the word. So here he says to Timothy that pursuing godliness or training yourself in godliness is more important than anything else you do. Now with any level of imagination, you can imagine where we're going to go over the next few minutes. If the first one didn't feel good, this one might feel worse. Now I'm sure if Timothy was struggling, I'm, sh- I'm sorry, I'm, now I'm sure, I, I'm not sure if Timothy was struggling with going to the gym too often, but I do know that Paul is saying there are other things that are of value, but training in godliness is of primary importance. Right? I mean, I don't know, maybe Timothy was spending too much time out, you know, flipping rocks and, and carrying boulders and trying to show off to the Roman soldiers or something, but But nevertheless, Paul says, you've got something that's of value. Yes, training and taking care of your body is of value, but it's of much, like a great distance in second priority. There is one that is of much better, much greater priority. 
He says, training of godliness, he says, is of value in every way. Now let me ask you to compare your priorities over the past week. Look at your priorities over the past week. Did you train yourself in godliness this past week? Did you train yourself in godliness this past week? Did you spend time in prayer, time in the word, time preparing for worship, time pondering the things of God, time exhorting and seeking exhortation, time applying the word of God? Did you do those things this past week? And that's, that's not even getting to like spiritual disciplines like fasting and you know, those other spiritual disciplines. I mean, some of these are spiritual disciplines like prayer and studying the word. You know, what Paul's saying is that the other things you are doing might be of good value, but they have become idolatry if they squeeze out your faithfulness and your training yourself in godliness. The other things that you do, they could be good things, but if they've squeezed out, then they've become an idol to you. Now, let's just talk about motivation here for a few seconds. Why, why would we train ourselves in godliness? Why is it such a big deal? What's he say? Go back to the text. He says, It is a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says it holds promise for the present life. There are benefits to your present life that many of us have no clue about. Like even, even myself, there's, there's, as I'm training myself in godliness, I get to experience more of the benefits for this life. Just a couple examples. You know that communication that you most likely stink at? The gospel can fix that. God owns words. He owns words. He owns communication. God has something to say about the way we communicate. You know that procrastination that you've perfected? The gospel can fix that. It says something about stewarding your time and placing rightful priorities. You know that marriage that continues to struggle? The gospel can fix that. It can fix that. But this comes from training ourselves in godliness. I would say that boils down to largely knowing the word and applying the word. If you want to write down something, training in godliness is knowing the word, applying the word. Knowing the word and applying the word. But then he doesn't stop there, guys. Get this. He doesn't stop there. There are eternal benefits to training yourself in godliness. Eternal benefits. Now think about this for a second. Benefits for the present life largely will fade away. Largely will fade away. But benefits, and, and he says, even that though should be a motivator. Why? You, it's a motivator. But he says, but the benefits in the life to come, because those benefits will never end. So your training in godliness has eternal consequences both good and bad. So really, and again, I just want us to help us understand what we're saying when we do certain things or we don't do certain things. When we don't train ourselves in godliness, we're saying this, I don't care about the present life and I don't even care about the future life. That's what we're saying. But when we do train ourselves in godliness, what are we saying? We're saying, I care about the present life. What are we saying when we do that? We're saying we care about the lives of those around us, right? Because everyone around us, our families, our kids, are impacted 
by our training in godliness for the present life. What else are we saying? When we train in godliness for the present life, we're saying we value the life that you, God, have given me today. But then when we train in godliness and we think about the future life or the life to come, we're saying, God, I value the life to come that you paid for me through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to train myself in godliness because I value the life to come. But I also value, as I train myself in godliness, I value the life to come as that impacts other people. How do I, how do I ensure, how do I, not ensure, but how do I at least do as much as I can that my kids one day would be followers of Jesus Christ? What should I do? I should follow Jesus Christ. Not follow my kids. Not follow their desires, but I follow the desires of the king. Whether my children like that or not, that is what's best for them. For them to see me train myself in godliness because that is of greatest priority to me. They will be benefactors of that training in godliness whether they realize it or not. That's what he's talking about when when God gives the promise to Abraham back in Genesis, and he says, your seed will be a blessing. You will be a blessing to all nations. It's not a blessing to all nations in that all nations will be believers in Jesus Christ and all people will be believers in Jesus Christ, but that the fact that Christ will redeem a people, they will be a blessing to the whole world. So as I am trained in godliness, I am a blessing to the people around me, whether they're redeemed or not. So how do I be a blessing to my kids? I be redeemed, and I be trained in godliness as a subsequent event to my being redeemed. That's how I'm a blessing to my kids. There's eternal benefits. Now, Largely, I think if we're, again, if, we're, if I'm understanding the context here right, if you just got done talking about apostasy, I don't think Paul is largely talking about training yourself in godliness for the future benefits of crowns and, and, you know, maybe an extra bedroom in your mansion or, you know, those kind of things. I think Paul's talking about training in godliness for the benefit of the future in making it there, I think is what he's talking about. I think that's the, that's the thrust of the passage is, is not that you would get all these benefits in the afterlife, but that you would persevere in faith in getting there. Now, just again, just for record, I don't, we don't believe that we can lose our salvation, but perseverance is a part of our salvation. I, we persevere because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So it's not we earn our way to salvation, but because we're redeemed, we're going to live a certain way. And God is... And, and part of that's going to ensure that we don't depart from the faith. So, Paul is saying, why, why would we train ourselves in godliness? Like, Christian, why would we do this? Because there's benefits for now, and there's benefits for the future. Now, why would, why would we then choose to not train in godliness? It's because we see something that we think is more beneficial than what God says is beneficial. So the benefits for life now that God said would come from being changed by the gospel and trained in godliness, there's other benefits that we think are more valuable. The, the excitement we get from watching football instead of reading our Bibles, maybe that's a greater benefit for us. I know, I just stepped on my own toes too. 
doesn't mean you can't watch football, right? I'm going to watch football. I'm going to watch a lot of football. But I'm going to read my Bible a lot too. All right, so he says this. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Church, what I've just got done saying, so far as it accurately represents what God has said here, it is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance. That you would train yourself in godliness. For it is of value in every way. I mean, some of us need to get the shifter out of idle, like out of neutral. And it's really just a false perception anyways. You're never really in neutral. You're either in reverse or you're in first, second, third, fourth, eighth gear, you know, whatever. Like, you're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. There is no reverse because the kingdom of God keeps moving forward. So you're either keeping up with pace or, or you're falling behind. So train yourself in godliness, lest you find one day you open up your eyes and look around you and the church has moved forward. Now, here's what's what's awesome. I love what Paul does here. Look at verse 10. He says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Guys, our hope is set not on our works, but on the living God. We're going to flesh this out a little bit. Our hope is set not on our works, but on the living God. So this is where we're going to talk about works-based salvation versus grace-based salvation. I love how Paul quickly steers us away from works-based righteousness and self-justification to Christ's justification and God's work. So what is he saying? We strive, right? We toil. We work hard. We sweat. We beat the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? What an amazing thought, right? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. What's he saying? Train yourself in godliness that you may win the race. He says every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, why do we beat the flesh? Why do we toil? Why do we run hard? Because we obtain something that is imperishable. Something that lasts for all eternity. He says so this, he says, so I do not run aimlessly. What does it look like to run aimlessly? It's to chase all the things of this world and neglect training and godliness. That's what he's talking about. That I would run after this idol, and I would run after this idol, and I would run after this momentary idol, and I'd run after this idol for this season, and whether this is whatever it is. We all have different idols. I, I hate to even begin naming some of them, but, but that's running aimlessly. What does it mean to run with aim? He goes, I do not box as one beating the air. What good is that? I mean, think about that. Right? I mean, I, I, I'm going to use a modern metaphor here, but I mean, think about the boxer. You know, he's hitting the bag. You've all seen like Rocky, you know, and pa 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 pa. I mean, what good is, I mean, what good is this versus actually hitting a bag? Like, it's very little benefit there, right? If any, he says, but I disciplined my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's he saying? I, I run with aim. 
I run with discipline. I train. I work hard. I fight. He says, I lose sleep to study the Word. I might even let my house get a little messy so that I would know the Word of God. Maybe I even give up some of my relaxation time and entertainment time so that I might know the Word of God. And then he says this, but in the end, it's the living God that will finish the work that he started. It's the living God who will do that. Brothers and sisters, it is not the living God in you that chooses to do other things and to neglect the Word of God. That is your flesh. Okay? But the living God works in you to desire what God desires. And that is that you would know His Son and that you would know Him and that you would love Him. That your theology, as we talked about last week, would lead to doxology. That your knowing God would lead to worship of God. How do you do that? How do you worship God more? you got to know God more. How do you know God more? You train yourself in godliness. You study the Word. You pray. You meditate on the Word. But he says here in the end, we understand though that as we're working hard, as we are striving hard, as we are beating the flesh, we know that it, our hope is not placed in what we're doing, but our hope is placed in what God's doing through us because He is the living God. My transformation in my life is evidence of God living in my life. He is the Savior of the world and His blood is applied to all those who believe. This is our ultimate motivator It's hope in God. Why would I train in godliness? Because I have hope in God that what He is doing, He will complete. So, some questions. Could could you really say from your pursuit of godliness that God is at work in your life? Like, looking back this past week, could you say my pursuit of godliness is evidence of God at work in my life? Or does it look like a kindergartner was trying? Like feelings of, oh, oh, I want to be godly. Oh, oh, I I try. Is that what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians? He's not saying that. He's saying, I beat my flesh. I discipline my body. I work hard. Know the Word. Apply the Word. Ask others to help you apply the Word. So next question would be, what is your bodily training? What is your bodily training? What I'm saying is, what is it in your life that is of value but has taken on greater value than training in godliness? What is it? Your career? Relaxation time? A perfect house? Sports, what is it? Those are all, can be good things. I watched the Ohio State football game last night. I got bored, but, and I went to bed at the third quarter because it was 48 to 6, and that's not a fun game to watch. Because then they put in all the secondaries and all that stuff, and it's like, right? But like, what is it that keeps creeping up, Right? That you find yourself going, ah, oh, I gave myself to that this past week. 
Or last night, I gave myself to that. Guys, I, I struggle with this myself, right? There's times I just want to sit down and veg, right, in front of the TV and just go, I'm just going to turn my brain off. But is that good? It's interesting, a lot of us, a lot of us say we don't have time to study the Word of God, but then, as Rusty would say, when, when football season comes around, we magically have four extra hours a week. You know, we're to watch. But he says, here, teach yourself the Word. Teach yourself the Word. You want to move on from milk? Teach yourself the Word. Train yourself in godliness. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, I just want to ask you a question. I just want to help you understand something. You, you, just like us, can never train yourself so as to measure up to God's standards. You can't. Why can't I? I cannot train myself in godliness so that one day I would be perfect and God would accept me. I cannot do that. That is why we have hope in God and His work. So how do we live up to God's standards? How do we measure that God would one day welcome us into His place? We do so by placing our faith in the one who did live up to those standards. The one whose training in godliness is the perfect example. And his name is Jesus. We repent of our sins and place our faith in his work, in his godliness, and his payment to pay the price for those sins. All right, so we train ourselves in godliness. Why? So many benefits for this life. So many benefits for the life to come. But if you're a good servant of King Jesus, you train yourself in the edicts of King Jesus. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. Follow with me. Your training in godliness is not just your concern. Your training in godliness is not just your concern. It's also a concern for the brothers and sisters around you. Now, your concern with your godliness needs to start with your own, but like Jesus. Think about Christ, Christ's pursuit of godliness. He did this just the same. He just didn't struggle as much like, struggle like, well, he never gave in. We'll put it that way, like you and I do. Maybe that's a better way to put that. But he has a pursuit of godliness. What did that ultimately lead him to do? To lay down his life so that his children and followers could be godly like him so where does his godliness lead to the godliness of others right your calling is to pursue godliness that you might lay down your life for the training of godliness in others so a good servant of jesus will train others in godliness this is what Paul tells Timothy. He says in verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Now clearly, not all of us are called to be church leaders as Timothy is. But I would commend these things to you as things worthy of your imitation. I think Paul would do the same thing. 
Listen to the strength of Paul's words. He's saying, command, teach these things. There's an intensity here concerning our pursuit of godliness and the helping of others pursue godliness. He tells Timothy, same thing I would say to us and he would say to us today, is that we should train others by our example or by your example. Are you training others by the example that you are living out? I ask this question I have here in my notes. How is your example working out for others? How is your example working out for others? Is it leading other people? Like when people look at you and watch your pursuit of godliness, does that lead them to pursue godliness harder? Or does it lead them to be more lackadaisical? Or more lethargic? Or does, it, or does your example help them pursue a different God? Or this God over here? I'll just be honest with the church. I, this was a big wake-up call for me. I... There was a big wake-up call, I think, over this past year. Uh, I learned by watching others. So if I think about my example and how is that working itself in other people, I think I've modeled well commanding and teaching with speech, but not modeled well, not given example of patience and love. Right? Or patience and gentleness. So I see that. So when I think about my example, how is that working itself out for other people? Well, I see people around me that are not modeling nurturing, not modeling patience, and gender, at least not to the extent that they should be. And, and so I look at my own life and go, oh, wow, it's not there, like, not like it should be. So how is my example working out for other people? Oh, no, that shouldn't be that case. So then what happens is I repent. For modeling something that doesn't reflect the perfect character of God and ask Him to show me His tender, gracious, and gentle side. Now it's funny that I say that in light of the sermon thus far. <laughs> sometimes love is tough and sometimes grace is hearing the hard things. Okay? But then patience in going, we're not going to have this figured out today, right? I don't expect us as a church to be incredible servants of King Jesus the moment we walk out of here. That's where the patience and more grace comes in is as we walk through this together and we learn through this together. So the question is, is your example commendable? He's saying to Timothy, have an example that's commendable. Have an example that is worthy of imitation. Moms, dads, is your example worthy of imitation? And where it's not, repent for it and ask God to help you fix it. Let me rephrase that, particularly for you control idols. Like, ask God to fix it, <laughs> okay? Don't you be God and ask Him to be your assistant, okay? <laughs> I think all of us, even, even if you're not a control idol, you... We all are self-justifiers and want to earn our own salvation ultimately. So maybe we should just change that phrase, right? Let him be God. You can be his assistant, okay? You, God, change this. Show me how. All right. Anyways, moving on. Now, is your example commendable? Uh, another question. How do you know? How do you know if your example is commendable? We need to measure it against the word, right? Right? Measure it against the word. Your, your standard is not your neighbor. 
Your standard is not the person at work or the people you used to work with or the people that go to the bar that you don't ever go to. Like, that's not your standard, okay? Your standard is the Word of God, is Jesus Christ. So then measure your example up to Him. All right, moving on. So train others by your example. Train others with the private and public ministry of the Word. 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. I think Paul Tripp, if you know who Paul Tripp is, he's really helpful at this point in his book, Dangerous Calling. He talks about two ministries of the Word. We've talked about this a little bit as a church. There's a public ministry of the Word and a private ministry of the Word. Public ministry of the Word is largely public teaching and is largely preaching on Sunday. This would be considered the public ministry of the Word. It's being proclaimed publicly. But I think we could also include in public ministries any time that the Word is taught. Any time the Word is taught in a public fashion. He's talking about public reading of Scripture here. And that you would publicly read the Scripture. That's why. Like, if you ever wonder, like, why do we pick a passage and read it on Sunday mornings in service? This is a public reading of the Word of God. But then there's the private ministry of the Word. This is where many churches are not doing very well. And private ministry of the Word is where we help apply with specificity the Word of God to each other. That means you got to know the other person. That means you also have to know the Word. Those are two really hard things to do, right? It takes a lot of work to know the Word. It takes a lot of work to know someone else's life. But you have to know both of those things in order to, with specificity, take the Word of God and say, brother, sister, let me help you apply this Word in your life. That takes patience, gentleness, kindness. It takes humility on both people's parts. It, that's what he's saying to him. He's saying, until I come, devote yourself public reading of Scripture to exhortation. Exhortation would be, could be publicly, could be privately as well, to teaching. Now it's interesting, Paul says here in the next phrase, he says, so let them see your progress. Let them see your progress. You know, and, and I had to stop here for a moment, and I have to say a couple comments on here. First of all, let them see your progress is assuming that you're having progress, right? So, the idea here is that you would be progressing so that someone could see something, okay? <laughs> so, that's the first thing. So, all of us, like, have other people, can they see progress? Not progress in you becoming more moral, or progress in you becoming a better Christian, but progress in your following Jesus, your training in godliness, your dependence on the cross, your understanding of the gospel and application of the gospel. Do they see that? I would like to say thank you. As an elder, you know, we walk with people as they grow all the time. Right? As, as a pastor, you walk with people as they're growing. Some stumble, some walk away, but many grow as well, Lord willing. Uh, we watch their progress. Rusty and I get to watch progress in people's lives, and that is such great joy. But I also want to say, what I want to say thank you for is, is many of you being gracious with me as you've watched my progress. And I hope there's been progress. I think there's been progress. As you've seen me grow, you've been patient and gentle with me in that progress. So, my question is to all of us, do others see your progress? Now, an implication of this, I would say too, is this, is if you always put on this, like, 
facade that everything's always perfect, then no one's ever going to see your progress, okay? So just humble yourself and realize that we are all sinners, okay? And you're not going to get help with that if, if, if everyone just thinks it's perfect, right? If people see where you have little, little dibbits in your life, little, little closet things that you need to remove, you know, that are hidden in the darkness, like people see those things. They can help you get those things out. All right, we must continue on. So Christian, what is your example leading others to believe and do? All right, we must be growing in knowing and applying the word if we are to effectively help a brother or sister grow in knowing and applying the word, right? Let me read to you Matthew 7, verse 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now that passage, it's in the context of the famous passage where people say, well, don't judge me, right? The Bible says, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. It's funny because Jesus here says to basically go judge your own eye so that you go judge your own self so that you can go judge them. Essentially is what he says here. He's saying take the speck out of your own eye. So take a look at your life. Judge the fruit that's in your life where you don't measure up, repent for it, and ask for forgiveness so that you can go to your brother or sister. You can look at their life and help them figure out where they're sinning and then help them remove the speck that's from their eye. So what happens ultimately is what we would call like mutual sanctification. You've got change going on in your life so that you can help the change in a brother or sister's life. So what's the implication of that? We, we have to know that we've got to train ourselves in godliness so that we can help train our brothers and sisters in godliness. That's part of that moving on from the milk. Again, what impact are we going to have on the kingdom if if, if we just consume all the time. But if we're able to start chewing on the meat, and then we can help discern and help apply those things to our brothers' and sisters' lives. Then we can lead others into godliness. You know, just to cast more vision. You know, this is our desire for, particularly for DNA, our one-on-two, one-on-one, one-on-three discipleship groups is, is for this, is for you to grow in godliness so that you can train others in godliness. Same thing with house gatherings. So you can grow in godliness and train others in godliness. And remember here, Paul says to use your gift. He says, Timothy, use your gift that God has given you. Let me ask you this, Christians. How could a servant of King Jesus do anything but use his gift for King Jesus? I mean, it's only in a a sinful, dreadfully sinful heart that, that we would take a gift that the king has given us and use it for something other than the king. Let's use it for the king. And I just want to say this. It's not, hey, you, go use it for the king. It's, hey, church, we get to use it for the king. He's given us a gift to use for the king. So we are all servants of King Jesus. As servants of King Jesus, we must train ourselves in godliness. And then at some point in that journey, we move on to training others in godliness, all the while still training ourselves in godliness, not as if we've moved on and become the sage. But now... We are training our others in godliness as we are training, continuing our own training in godliness. All modeled after what our Savior did. Now if we are to move forward in this pursuit of godliness, then we must assign the proper weightiness to training in godliness. Which kind of brings us full circle. What kind of weightiness is there that we apply, that we 
that we train ourselves in godliness. Notice here that there is imminent danger that Paul says to Timothy. There's danger. There's danger. We like to talk about Jesus as such a gentle guy standing at the door knocking, all right? If he wants to open the door, he'll open the door, okay, when it comes to salvation. But you know what is at the door? Danger, all right? All of our, the doors of all of our hearts, there's danger. Paul says to Timothy, he says, to keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep close watch. Why? Because there's danger. Do we train ourselves in godliness as if there's danger at the door? Do we? Hebrews 3, 12-13, he says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I think the reality is, is that we all have a heart that wants to lead us to fall away from the living God. You know, Jeremiah talks about a heart that is wicked and desperately evil. He says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is the danger? The danger... I think in here, in this particular context, is that you have people who are speaking lies. You have people who are speaking lies. So many of us, it's not that we have people around us that are speaking lies, but maybe we're speaking lies to ourselves. Because we, we all have the flesh that is leading us away from the living God. We all have flesh that is saying, no, 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 there's more joy over here. There's more joy over here. Leave this God behind so that you can embrace this God. We all do that every day. But he says here in Hebrews 3, he says to exhort one another every day. What he's saying is you and I each need exhortation every day. Now, for some of that, it may mean it doesn't come from necessarily a brother or a sister, but certainly from the Word of God. Like, as you read the Word of God, it should be exhorting you. Now, we can't be okay with just reading the Word of God and calling that our exhortation, because here he says, to you exhort you, right? You exhort your brother. You exhort your sister every day. Because even as we read the Word, we can still read it in such a way that it sets very well with us, right? We all know the passages to stay away from when we're struggling with that sin. You know, we just, we just don't go there or, or somehow our, magically our concordance has disappeared so we can't look up that word that we know we're struggling with. You know, that's not in the back of the Bible and, you know, the whole internet has crashed, right? So, like, I can't find help for this, God. I'm sorry, and I don't know my Bible well enough to go to that passage, so I'm just going to keep on sinning. I, I mean, we can all do those things, right? We do that. I think I told you a few weeks ago, like, a couple of my brother, you know, uh, I know, like, which of the counselors in my life to stay away from, depending on what I'm struggling with, because I know which ones are going to be harder on me, right? No, I ain't going to call him, because he ain't going to tell me what I want to hear. But I can call him. He'll be more encouraging. Right, right, okay. Assign proper weightiness. There's danger, but what else is bringing weightiness to the situation. And that is the last thing, and that is salvation depends on it. Guys, as much as we want to be, listen, as much as we want to be 
once saved, always saved, right? I mean, I know that is something I, I believe myself, right? If you have truly been redeemed, God will finish the work that he started. I believe that with all my heart. But then you've got to wrestle with this passage because Paul says here that if you persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's a responsibility on our part. Now again, we understand that that's God doing that. Our hope is in God. But salvation depends on it. Pursuit of godliness for yourself and for others is not an option. I think the church has made this an option. So I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, I got baptized, I joined a church. Now the pursuit of godliness is an option. That's for those who move on in their faith and grow on to maturity. No, that's not an option. Nowhere in the Bible is that an option. We're all called to train ourselves in godliness. And if you are a child of the King, if God, the living God, is at work in you, then you will be training yourself in godliness. Now, Christians, you keep watch on the things that are important to you. We all do. We have those things in our lives that are very important to us. And as Paul tells Timothy to keep watch on yourself and on your teaching, there are things in our lives that we keep watch on because they're important to us. It could be cleaning the house. It could be managing your money. It could be making your kids happy. These are all things that if we value, we keep watch on. We keep a close watch on those things. The follow-up question to that would be, does the allotment of your resources, such as time, money, energy, show that the pursuit of godliness, watching yourself and your teaching, is important to you? Matter of fact, does it show? Does the allotment of your resources, time, money, energy, does it show that pursuit of godliness is of primary importance to you? Guys, let's be a group of people. Let's be a gathering of the church who allocates all the bountiful resources that God has given us in order to pursue godliness and then let everything else flow from that. Let's be a church that takes the resources of the king and serves him by using those resources to pursue him. I mean, what a magical, what a magical deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, the king gives us everything we need to serve the king. But it also helps us understand that we can't serve the king without the king. So it's all dependent upon the king. But he enables us. Like All the greatest joy in the world is experienced in serving the king. So what's the king doing? He's, he's ultimately giving us all the resources we need to find all the joy we could ever need in serving the king. What a deal. What a deal. Let's be a group of people who does this. So what is your job title? A maintenance man? An IT guy? a computer engineer, a stay-at-home mommy. All these places are simply the arenas that God has ordained for you to live out your title as a servant of King Jesus. As a mommy, you're first and foremost a servant of Jesus. There's no need to complain. You get to serve the King, right? You get to serve the King by serving your kids. No need to stress about having enough strength to do what God's called you to do. You can't do any of it without the king anyways. You get to serve the king. As a member of Renovation Church, as a member of this body, you're first and foremost a servant of the king. 
There's no need to search for your preferences. You get to serve the king. What more preference could you want? He's chosen you to serve him. Praise God. There's no need to save your life. You get to lose it for the king. That's a wonderful thing. And every place we find ourselves as a minister of King Jesus, we are called to be training in godliness and helping others train in godliness. We are striving to be better servants of the king. We are helping others become better servants of the king. But there's a weightiness to it, right? There's an eternal salvific importance that is, that is attached to this idea of pursuing godliness. There is eternal benefits and eternal consequences. So we give this everything we have. He says, to this end, we toil, we strive, we work hard. But you know the beauty of it all? Is that Jesus gave it all so that we could have it all. Right? He dies for our ungodliness and gives us His godliness, right? In one sense... Church, we call this kind of like the already, not yet, but in one sense, you stand before God as godly as you will ever be. You know that? Do you realize that? That you've been justified in Christ and you stand, if you've been redeemed, you've placed your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and you've been redeemed, then you stand before God as godly as you will ever be because of the godliness of Jesus Christ. In another sense, You are walking with God every day, still struggling with the ungodliness of your flesh. Pursuing godliness here. You are righteous before God. At the same time, because we are still working out our salvation, we have the struggling with the the weight of our flesh. Now what's wonderful is that God knows both of these realities, and He is... Such a good God that He didn't just give us the ultimate reality of godliness in Christ, but He is, and then leave us to our own selves for the rest of this life. Instead, He walks with us every day through every struggle with ungodliness, so that every battle against ungodliness might be won, one battle at a time. Guys, every situation in life comes down to the decision in the garden, right? Am I going to believe God or am I going to believe myself? Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? It was the same thing Adam and Eve asked. Every situation in life, pursuit of godliness, comes down to that question. Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? Each and every time it's a battle. And each battle requires training, right? I mean, how many of us, if we were going to go battle someone, battle in war or battle to accomplish this task, what... How many of us would just go out there not knowing what we're doing? I mean, that would be foolish. It would be foolish in both cases, too. But, like, you would train yourself, right? We're in a battle. Train ourselves. Each and every time it's a battle. But it is a battle that has ultimately been won in Jesus. So you don't have to be afraid of losing this battle. It's already been won. You've already been set free. And it's a battle that, by the power of the cross, we can win each time. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, this battle, you're in this battle, it can be won. But train yourself in godliness for the battle. Train others in godliness. And in doing so, Timothy, you will be a good servant of King Jesus. We all 
should live with the encouragement we can be servants of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us to be servants of King Jesus. Father, thank you for giving us the resources to be servants of your Son. Father, thank you that we don't have to figure this out on our own, but Father, you've given us your word that we can start with and work through and even end with as our training in godliness. You've, you've revealed yourself to us in your words that we would know what godliness looks like. And then you sent your Son to die on the cross to set us free from the ungodliness that we are slaves to. And so, Father, as we, as we spend these next few moments worshiping and, and praying, Father, I pray that... Um, that in these moments that we would um, that we would reflect on not just where we are ungodly, but we would reflect on particularly our pursuit of godliness. That we would we would ask you to help us pursue you and pursue training in godliness. And Father, that that is hard work, but. Father, even in the midst of that, help us to trust you, that our hope is placed in you, the living God, and not in our own work, Father. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us as we sing?